always good to exhort you in the Word, especially to exhort you about the importance of God's Word. And so we are back in Psalm 119, part 21, 21st stanza, the Shin stanza. And the title of the sermon today is A Life That Honors the Lord. Psalm 119, we'll be reading verses 161 to 168, will be our text for this afternoon. And may God bless his eternal word into our souls. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous ordinances. Those who love your law have a great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Let's pray together. O Lord Most High, without your spirit, the faculty of our minds are darkened. We pray, open our minds and our hearts, O Holy Spirit, to see the light of your word. Incline our hearts to your testimonies, that our hearts would tremble and be in awe of your words. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. A life that honors the Lord always begins in his excellent word. And how we approach God's word and our attitudes for it has everything to do with how we please him and honor him. Now you can take anything, almost anything in life. What your attitudes for someone or something will determine the way you treat it. For example, if my attitudes for my wife is one of love and honor, then I will show her love and honor through my words and actions. If your attitude in your job or school is one of dread and resentment, then you will not be a motivated worker or student. If your attitude in money and wealth is a source of your joy, then you will be determined to get that money no matter how much toil and labor it requires. Your attitude for someone or something will determine the way you treat it. Now, throughout this stanza, there's an obvious interplay between attitudes and actions. There is a movement from fear to joy to hate to love, gratitude, peace, hope, and then to obedience in the last three verses. In other words, doing and keeping flow out of the attitudes of the heart. Your attitude for something or someone will determine the way that you treat them. The psalmist's attitude for the word of God is what determines his life in honoring the Lord. Now, before we look at verse 161, I want you to see just how different this stanza is from the other stanzas in Psalm 119, not only for what it contains, but for what it does not contain. There are no prayer requests here. There are no pleas to God to revive him, which is very characteristic of Psalm 119. The tone of this section is, is in a striking contrast with the preceding one. Here, with the exception of the first phrase of the first verse, all is sunny. And so if, if the Raish stanza was the midnight of the psalm, this is the noonday. If the Raish stanza was one of desperation where it says, look at me, plead my cause and revive me, then the Shin stanza is, well, how are you? I'm good. I'm great. Thanks. Joy, peace, hope, breathe through this song and blended beautifully our reverential awe and consuming adoration for God's word. 
But what is remarkable is that the psalmist's situation has not really changed. You know, from the very first verse in the stanza, the psalmist tells us that the situation he finds himself, and we find that princes persecute him. There are leaders in government of which he is a citizen who are persecuting him. They are, they are using their power to control him and trouble him. Now, we don't know who the psalmist is. I made a case that the psalm may be Daniel, but whoever he is, he is known by the princes of the land. Now, he's mentioned these princes back in verse 23. He says, even though princes sit and talk against me. Now, back in 23, they were merely sitting and talking against him. But here in verse 161, they're rising to their feet and they're persecuting his very life. Attention is drawn to the actual pursuit and the persecution of the psalmist. But for what reason? Without cause, the psalmist says. Without cause, they had no grounds whatsoever for their attacks upon him. These are evil times in the psalmist's world. And I believe the psalmist begins with the testimony of the evil he is facing in order to demonstrate that the profaneness of the times should not slacken, but heighten our zeal. The more outrageous others are in sin, the more courageous we should be for the truth. The greater the persecution, the greater the faithfulness, even as we heard in our children's sermon. The psalmist shows us in the stanza that we ought to burn hotter in a cold, heartless age. And though the times were evil, it only served to deepen his resolve and his commitment to godliness. Now, our times in our world are not different than the psalmist. Now, sure, he faced persecutions from princes, something we might never experience. But our world is laden with sin and evil. There is a strong influence of evil in our world, orchestrated by the prince of the power of the air. And this prince, who is Satan himself, is committed 24 hours a day and seven days a week to attack us. Have you felt Satan's power lure you and tempt you this past week? I'm sure you have. An important question that must be raised then is, how may we keep up the fervor of grace in times of an evil world? How can we live a life that honors the Lord in a world that so dishonors him? Now this psalmist will give us six ways of doing the six exhortations. And all of these ways deal with our approach to God's word accompanied by our attitudes for God. And here's the first way. Let us approach God's word with godly fear. Now, immediately after saying that princes persecute me without cause, the psalmist contrasts their wickedness with his own worship. But my heart stands in awe of your words. L literally, he's saying, my heart is terrified. Or my heart is startled with horror. Now, to clarify, this wasn't some slavish fear against a cruel master, but a godly fear against a holy God whom he loved. A heart that stands in all of your words is a heart that pleases God, for it was in Isaiah 66 too that the Lord says, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite and who trembles at my word. But an objection may come in this manner. But doesn't it say in the Bible that the devil trembles at God's word? Did not Belshazzar, that evil king, tremble at the handwriting of God? Did not Felix tremble at the word preached by the Apostle Paul? Well, I answer, wicked men and the devil may tremble at God's word. But never does it say of them that they mended their ways to God. The trembling of the wicked drives them further and further away from God 
But the child of God who trembles at God's word draws near and near to God. Moreover, while wicked men and the devil may tremble at God's word, but under their trembling hearts, their hearts are as dry and hard as rocks, like Pharaoh who trembled, but yet was hardened. But to the contrary, the child of God, the godly child of God, when he trembles at God's word, it produces a broken and contrite heart. They look upon their sin and they mourn over their sin. But perhaps most revealing, the hearts of the wicked men and devils only tremble when they hear of judgments to come and some punishment to be received as a criminal before the judge. But the child of God trembles under the sense of God's holiness and kindness to him. This is the difference between a slavish fear against a cruel master and a godly fear against the love for his father. As the Puritan Thomas Boston wrote, slavish fear dread nothing but hell and punishment. Godly fear dreads sin itself. The one is mixed with hatred of God, the other with love to him. The one looks on him as a revenging judge, the other as a holy father to whose holiness the heart is reconciled and the soul longs to be conformed. A child who dearly loves his father trembles when he has offended or grieved his father. Think of the hemorrhaging woman in Mark chapter 5. That poor woman came to Jesus and touched his garment. And when Jesus stopped and asked, who touched my garment? He looked around and he saw the woman who touched him. And it says there in Mark 5, 33, but the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the truth. So fearing that she offended Christ, is approaching and touching him, she came trembling, it says, but yet with a heart full of love for Christ. So it is with every true child of God who fears him. With one eye, we fix them upon the holiness and justice of God, and so we tremble, mourning over our sin. But at the same time, with the other eye, we fix our gaze upon the patience and the goodness and the graciousness and the readiness of God to forgive as our Father and our hearts tremble with love and adoration. This is the kind of fear that the psalmist had when his heart stands in awe of God's Word. It's the attitude of a child who loves his father and fears of offending the one that he loves, not because he's afraid of torture or even of punishment, rather because he's afraid of displeasing the one who is in that child's world, the source of his security and love. And beloved, note very specifically in our text, when the trembling of God's word is the greatest fear of all, it swallows up all other fears. The thrust of his testimony is apparent. His fear of God's word is greater than of any earthly ruler or any other fear, however great they may be. Now, one might expect in light of such unjust treatment to fear men, well, that's all they were to the psalmist. They were mere men. But the psalmist was overwhelmed by the greater fear of God whom he loved. And this ultimate reality is what gripped his heart and caused him to say, my heart stands in awe of your words. You know, there is a great illustration of this found in the prophet Habakkuk. Why don't you turn to Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3. Now, there you have a prophet who has every reason to fear for his circumstances. He has every reason to fear for the loss of his life. 
Fear for the loss of securities and the comforts of this world. Fear of the unknown. But then in verse 16, the prophet hears God's word and trembles. And so when he heard it, it says there, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones and in my place, I tremble. Now you might think of Habakkuk as some easily frightened man. Oh, not so. He was a man that was strong in spirit and a great faith for his trembling heart at God's word strengthened his spirit and made him strong against all the afflictions of the world. And so it says in verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. You see, his heart was so taken up with the fear of God's word that it swallowed up every other fear. A healthy, godly fear upon God and his word is a necessary attitude upon an evil-stricken world. It is a trembling at God's word that will help us against all other tremblings. Friend, what do you fear? What do you fear? The only way that you will be free from all other fears is a heart that fears God's word. Now this deep awe and fear of God's word paved the way for all the other godly attitudes that we see in the psalmist. We see in verse 162 how a gracious trembling at God's word is joined with joy, fear, and joy go together. As it says in Psalm 2.11, rejoice with trembling. Now since the psalmist had a deep reverence for God's word, exuberant joy was its close companion. I rejoice at your word, it says, as one who finds great spoil. Verse 162 gives us a second exhortation to tower above the evil in our world. Let us find true riches in God's word with godly joy. Now, you can either find your joy in the world or in the Word. Those are mutually exclusive, meaning that if wealth is the goal that drives your engine, then God's Word will not be a joy to you. However, if you find the light in God's Word, then those treasures that are passing away will lose its appeal on you. The psalmist wanted a treasure that money cannot buy, riches that far exceed any diamond or any amount of money in the world. Now, when the psalmist says, I rejoice at your Word as one who finds great spoil, He's saying that he finds his delight. He finds his joy in the word as a person finding great treasures. The psalmist compares his joy to one who has long been on the battlefield. And at long last, he has won the battle. And after the victory, after the blood, and after the toil, and after the sweat, there is this dividing of the spoils, the spoils of victory. And there is this exuberance of triumph in the hearts now that the conquest has been won. The division, division of spoils of war was an occasion of great rejoicing. You can picture this victorious soldier after winning the battle, surveying the dead enemies and stripping the dead in the field of battle, taking the rich garments of the slain and plundering its village of all its possessions. And you see, as God has opened the eyes of the psalmist to behold wondrous things out of his law, each discovery of, its, of the kind was like finding a treasure. 
discovery of fresh truth came as a glittering prize to the psalmist. Now, a quick survey from the beginning of Psalm 119 reveals to us the goal that drove the engine of the psalmist in his delight in finding God's word. Turn back to verse 14. Now, from the very beginning of this great psalm, he said, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. Right in the middle of the psalm, look at verse 111. He says, I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. And when he comes toward the end of the psalm, Psalm 162, verse 162, his determination never wavered, but only grew stronger. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. The fact that the psalmist had this diligence to apply his heart and to search for its hidden treasure from the beginning to the very end tells us that the more he discovered the truth of God's word, the more delight and contentment he found. Beloved, let us not forget that there are treasures to be found in this book. The psalmist did not find great spoil on the surface, but he dug in there and persistently found it. Oh, how we, how we desperately need to read our Bibles like a man digging for gold, like a soldier plundering the spoil of his enemies with delight in every discovery. You know, there is an interesting commentator of Psalm 119 named Gene Cunningham, and he, he seeks to describe the meaning of each stanza based on the symbol of the Hebrew alphabet. And if your Bible is like mine, the Hebrew alphabet shin appears right next to your English transliteration. And Cunningham says that shin pictures a mouth and an open, smiling mouth with a tooth in it. And he says this represents a spiritual feasting, feeding on the word of God and the satisfaction that inevitably follows. That is what the psalmist does as he rejoices God's word as one who finds grace flow. That is how you and I need to approach God's word, not merely licking the surface, but feasting, feasting in God's word. I guarantee you that your greatest regret when you get to heaven, Lord willing, will not be how much of these earthly riches you cannot bring with you, but how much of these heavenly riches you squandered away in your time on earth. Don't let the devil fool you. Don't let the riches of this world choke and deaden your delight in God's word. Don't let your flesh draw you away from what is most important. Recognize the value of God's word and the everlasting joy that it brings. Oh, what would the martyrs of our faith have given for a leaf of the Bible? Thomas Watson, that eloquent Puritan, wrote, The word is the field where Christ, the pearl of price, is hid. In the sacred mind we dig, not for a wedge of gold, but for a weight of glory. Now, we can neither stand in awe of God's word nor rejoice at it unless we hate all the contrary ways of the word. You know, know, what we hate is determined by what we love. If we love God and his word as we ought, then we will hate those things that are against God's word. If we do not love God's word, then soon enough we'll be living in those sins that we really should be hating. And here really lies our spiritual conflict. Our natural affections are so opposed to the character and the will of God that we often in our hearts love what God hates and hate what God loves. And and so the psalmist is showing us a third exhortation to live God-honoring lives. 
He says, let us beware and hate all deceit by loving God's word with godly commitment. Now, the psalmist has made this love-hate contrast before. He said it back in verse 104, 113, 128. But what sets apart 163 from the rest is that the psalmist adds the word despise and loathe, combining it with hate, indicating his utter disgust for all hypocrisy and deceit. He hated and despised it as hell itself. And God's children must hate all falsehood with a deadly hatred. This deadly hatred of falsehood and sin is needed for every man and every woman of God because of the cunning ways of the devil in this world. You know how different things would be if Eve had a holy hatred from the tempter's lie with a strong determination. But when that deceitful serpent said, but you shall not surely die, has from that moment proven itself a most effectual instrument in capturing thousands of souls in the chains of the devil's schemes. Beloved, you must know that his tactics have not changed since his lying ways appear so attractive to the lust of our flesh, because his deceitful ways are so agreeable to our natural inclination, because his crooked ways are so pleasurable in our eyes that at first contact with temptation, we readily cherish it and embrace it and love it. And since we don't hate and despise it, we did not flee from it and get caught, and we get caught in the teeth of the sinful trap. You know, we, we, we treat our sins as we treat a little puppy dog. We pet it, we walk it, we play with it, only to discover that this dog is actually a ferocious lion ready to devour us. What temptations do you struggle with? What lies are you buying into? Is it sexual sins? Is it prideful sins? Selfish sins? Sins of anger, bitterness? Resentment, laziness, greed. Oh, whatever sin it is, let us learn to hate it with a deadly hatred. Let us so love God's word that we hate everything opposed to it. As Charles Bridges has said, pray that the arrow of the conviction may be dipped in the blood of Christ. Oh, my fellow brothers and sisters, lie before your Savior who died for you. Come to the place where your sins were washed away and there you will most clearly see this inescapable connection of a hatred of falsehood with a love for the law of God. Now the psalmist has just spoken of his fear, joy, hatred, and love and he now expresses his love in God's word and praise and adoration. Now let's not forget that princes are still persecuting him without cause. And under these extreme difficult circumstances, a psalmist found a secret that makes him soar high above his enemies. And it was in the secret chambers of heaven itself when he is found praising the Lord all the day long. Fourth exhortation is this, let us always magnify God's word with a godly attitude. Seven times a day I praise you, the psalmist said. Now here, the fact of praising God is not surprising as the frequency of his praises to God. Not merely morning and evening, not merely three times a day, but seven times he gives thanks to God. And most commentators take seven times figuratively to represent a continued praise throughout the day, but does that rule out the fact that he didn't literally pray 
seven times a day. No, both can be true. The psalmist really could have praised God seven times a day. It speaks of his continued praise that is ascending in his heart in all occasions, ascribing honor and glory unto him. And we, as we get to the end of Psalm 119, that is the one characteristic that stands out most notably in the psalmist from sunrise to beyond sunset. His praise for the word of God dominated his life. Notice at dawn, the word of God is in his heart. Verse 147, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I wait for your words. Verse 97, daily, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Even at night, verse 55, oh, Lord, I remember your name in the night and keep your law. But not only at night, but at midnight, verse 62, at midnight, I shall rise and give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. So at dawn, at night, at midnight, daily, seven times a day, the word of God was on his mind. And as often as he thought of God's word, a song leaped to his lips as he praised God. And considering how often the psalmist praised God and thanked him for it, how regularly do we praise God? How often do we thank him? A most heart-searching question comes from the pen of Spurgeon. Do we praise God seven times a day? Do we praise Him once in seven days? The psalmist's posture of godly praise and attitude seven times a day reminds me of one of my favorite hymns by Fanny Crosby, who at only six weeks old lost her eyesight. She has written about 6,000 hymns, but my favorite of hers is Blessed Assurance. And it goes like this. The first stanza, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heirs of salvation, purchase of God, born of a spirit, washed in his blood. And here comes the refrain. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Let us also praise our Savior for Jesus is mine. There, there is so much in God's word to be thankful for that our days must be sprinkled, rather pouring with praise and thanksgiving to God for all that he is and all that he has done for us. Love for the word produces not only praise for God, but also the peace of God in our hearts. And exhortation number five becomes so comforting and helpful to live in godliness in a godless world, and he exhorts us to let us peacefully, rest peacefully in God's word with godly love. Notice in verse 165, those that the psalmist, right? That word those, the psalmist is looking beyond himself here. Those puts his arms around those who love God's word. All of us here this afternoon who treasure his word. He says, those who love your law. And again, we see the psalmist speaking of his deep, Abiding commitment to the word. And the love, spoken, the love spoken of here refers more than affections or passions. It speaks of fidelity and faithfulness as well. Those who love your law have great peace. Now in the Hebrew, peace is the word shalom. It has to do with a personal well-being in all respects. In the context of the psalmist situation, peace speaks of the well-being of the heart. Now, there is a vital connection of peace and love for the law. Those who love the law knows more of the mercy that is found in God 
And they know more that God is slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and thus they rest in peace with God. This is a peace of one who is right with God. That the Lord is with me and will never forsake me. The peace that God is for me. The peace that God is in me. And the peace that God is with me. And those who love God's word have this peace. It is not a peace as the world gives, but it only comes from God. It is a peace that surpasses all understanding. It is a peace that only Christ can give to us through his work on the cross, allowing us to come near to God. This is a peace that you can have this afternoon when you love God's word. Now, at the end of the verse comes the evidence of this peace. The psalmist is saying that in the midst of difficulties and temptations of life, nothing causes them to stumble. Nothing. He who loves God's word has a sure footing in life. But friends, I want you to think about what this means for those who do not love, who do not love God's law. Far from enjoying peace, they will be hounded by their worries, tormented in their thoughts, overwhelmed by the difficulties that plunge them into despair. And for those who reject God's word forever, I mean, that is a description of hell, is it not? Do you desire to have this peace? Do you seek to have the well-being and the tranquility of the heart? Then you must recognize that this divine peace can only come when one is reconciled with God. The first step toward peace with God is to first recognize that there has been a conflict. The natural heart wants to be king, and so it is hostile to God's claims to lordship over us. Friend, this hostility with God is something you were born with. You are committed to the idea that the only way that you will be happy is if you are in holy charge of your lives. And this self-centered desire is at conflict with God. That is why you can never have peace on earth because there is no peace with God. But my friend, hear the good news of the gospel. There is one who can bring you everlasting peace with God. And he is God's only begotten son and whose name is Prince of Peace. He can reconcile sinners like you to God. He alone can do it. Because though he is God, he assumed a human nature. And as the God-man, he died for our sins and rose from the dead three days later and bridges that chasm and accomplishes peace with God. Oh, you must then rest in what Christ has done and turn away from your old way of living. You, have, you may have been searching all your life to find this peace. Here it is in God's word. And the message of God's beloved son, Jesus Christ, who came to reconcile God and men. Now we come now to the sixth and final exhortation in the last three verses. And they're grouped together because of the godly obedience that characterized these verses. Now I mentioned to you earlier that there is a logical flow uh, from the psalmist's attitudes that carries him to godly obedience. The attitudes of the heart for God's word, his godly fear, his delight, his hatred for falsehood, his love for the law, his gratitude for the word, his peace in the word, they all motivate him to live in godly obedience. So here is the sixth exhortation. Let us conform to God's word with godly obedience. The psalmist knows that obedience is not optional. He knows that it is essential to godliness and it is the only basis on which he can have any claim on God for his swift deliverance and intervention. And what we see here is that godly obedience is strongly motivated by three 
factors in these last verses. Number one, there is a confident expectation. Look at verse 166. He says, I hope for your salvation, O Lord. He's saying, I, I fully expect your salvation. I am confident that you will deliver me. I am waiting in steadfast expectation in your hand to deliver me. But notice his grounds for his confident hope. And do your commandments, that conjunction and can also be translated since or because I do your commandments. In other words, I, I have this confident expression of hope and waiting for God of salvation and it serves as a motivation for the psalmist to be conformed to the Lord's commandments. But notice the second factor that motivated his godly obedience. That is a consuming adoration. Verse 167, my soul keeps your testimonies. Now, this is not some outward facade of outward obedience. This is not some hypocritical show that he's putting on like the Pharisees who went about their strict keeping of the law. No, no, this is, this, is the, this is the depth of his being. My soul, he says, all the way down on the inside, my soul keeps your testimonies. And here is the motivating factor of a soul keeping God's word. Since I love them exceedingly again the word and is better translated since since i love them exceedingly that is why he kept them because he loved them dearly and having kept them he loved them all the more and we love god's commandments not so that he will love us but because he loves us and we him the psalmist consuming adoration of god's word puts fire in his bones for his whole soul to keep god's testimonies now, as motivating as his confident expectation in God's salvation and consuming adoration of God's word may have been, the ultimate reason, the most pressing motivation for godly obedience comes in verse 168 when he says, I keep your precepts and your testimonies for all my ways are before you. This last phrase is both solemn and comforting it is solemn in that all my ways are before god all of them god knows when i get up in the morning he knows when i go to bed he knows when i go out and he knows when i come in he pulls up his seat at meal times he is the unseen guest at every meal the silent listener to every conversation he sits with me in my office rides beside me in my car he reads my thoughts and the secrets of my heart. All my ways are before him. You know, several years ago, a Christian magazine published an anonymous article by a Christian leader recounting his fall into pornography. And it all began when he was alone in a hotel room in a distant city. He saw an advertisement for an exotic dancer at a local dance club rationalizing to himself that to be an effective Christian leader, he had to experience all of life. And he was soon on his way to the show. But it didn't stop there. He was hooked. And for the next five years, he fought a desperate battle with extreme sexual lust. So, but suppose that instead of being alone, that is, the man's wife was with him. Or perhaps an elder from the church had been with him that night. Would he have gone to the show? Of course not. The fact is, though, that God was with him. God was there looking with grief on his wayward child, 
All my ways are before God. This means we are never out of his presence and his all-seeing eye. Augustine, the old church father, wrote this, I may hide thee from my eye, but not myself from thine eye. When the captains of Alexander the Great would meet in council, if he was not present, his empty chair was set before them, which helped them to remember to act as if he were present. There is a timeless lesson to be learned from this recognition of the Lord's omniscient eye. Since all my ways are known before God, I must be thoroughly committed to walking as children of light. And if walking with God is the delight of the Christian, then walking before God is the exercise of this principle. For all things private as well as public, the most trivial as well as the most weighty, to have our eyes fixed upon the omniscient, all-seeing, all-knowing God is what propels us to further godliness. Yet there is also a comfort. There is a comfort in knowing a God who sees everything because He knows my hurt. He knows my circumstances. He knows my troubles. He knows my suffering. We cannot know the future, but we know that all of our ways are before Him. All of my ways are before you can be a very solemn text, but it could also be very comforting. Whether this text scolds me or soothes me depends on whether or not I can say, I keep your precepts and your testimonies. A life that honors the Lord always begins in its excellent word. And how we approach God's word and our attitude for it has everything to do with how we please him and honor him. I think John Wesley put it best in his attitude towards God's word when he says, I am a creature of a day passing through life as an arrow through the air. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. How to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way for this very end he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be a man of one book. Here then I am, far from the busy ways of men. I sit down alone. Only God is here in his presence. I open, I read his book. Brothers and sisters, we ought to love the Bibles. And we ought to be thrilled to have this book in our hands. The man who wrote Psalm 119 understood this about the Bible and thus lived a life that honored the Lord. We should do no less. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your word and speaking to us through the psalmist's life, a life that honors you. And we confess that too often we love what we ought to hate and we hate what we ought to love. We confess that the root of all our sin is that we still resist the truth of your authority and holiness because we want to do right in our own eyes. We confess our foolishness to chase with our hearts this, these fleeting things in this world rather than rejoicing in your truth and treasuring Christ. Create in us a clean heart, O God, by the blood of your dear Son. Cleanse us from all of our iniquities. Take that heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, a heart that loves you and a heart that stands in awe of your words. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen.